Uh, You're catching us in the middle of a sermon series called uh, The Essentials, and it's a series that's taking us through eight big uh, kind of pillars of the Christian faith that really aren't unique to one denomination or another. Uh, They really could be considered uh, the, the foundation stones of the larger Christian church, and it's called The Essentials. You might have heard this saying, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, uh, liberty, in all things, charity. So this idea that, like, let's, let's be united around the essentials, and be gracious with everything else, and loving all the time, right? That, that seems a good motto to me. And so this series attempts to kind of unpack some of those essentials. So far, we've covered what Christians believe about Scripture, uh, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And today we think about what Christians believe about human beings. So let's listen to scripture as we do that. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, over all the creatures that move along ground. So, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase the number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has a fruit with a seed in it. They will be yours for food, and to all the beasts of the earth, and all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it. I give you every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning. The sixth day, Lord said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them, and whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So, the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs, then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man and brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and and they they felt felt no shame. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. 
There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace, they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Liza. Thank you, Noah and Jana. Well, um, there's a group of people that gathered together to pray before the service, and as we were praying this morning, I just kind of confessed and laughed that every time I sit down to prepare one of these sermons, I kind of throw my arms up and think, how in the world can you shoehorn all of this into 20 minutes? It's just impossible. So with this continuing caveat that as we try to cover these essentials, it's a 40,000-foot view, painting with a really, really big brush today. But that's kind of the point, right? So thinking about what Christians believe about human beings... So maybe a way of trying to just put some broad categories to that to, to address it in 15 or 20 minutes. Let's think human origin, human nature, and human situation. So three big categories, origin, nature, and, and situation. So human origin, what do Christians believe about human beings, how we came to be, and, and why? Uh, the Bible's pretty clear on this. You know, we read some of these scriptures that... Uh, uh, the, the position of our faith is that human beings were no accident, that we are not a biological happenstance that just uh, came out through a, a vast amount of time and the right molecules coming, coming together. Uh, here's the scripture again. So God created mankind. And the first thing Christians believe about human beings is that we were created by God. Created by God. Now this is, this is one of those things you can probably spend a lifetime uh, kind of pondering and, and thinking about because I doubt that you feel like a creature. I doubt that you feel like a being that was created, right? At least I know that I don't. I feel like a fully autonomous, independent entity who's the captain of his own destiny. That's how I feel. I don't feel like I had a beginning and will definitely have an end in this earthly life. I don't hold that in my mind and heart all the time. Like, I'm, I'm going to die. But, but these things are true, right? These things are true. Uh, that's, that's how we feel that we're independent and autonomous, but that is not what Christians believe. You know, we believe that we were created by God, that you and I are both creatures created beings. So if we were created, why were we created? The short answer is to glorify God. Uh, Christians do not believe that God created human beings because God needed us in some way. And, you know, God didn't create us because he was lonely and needed some friends. The, the, the Christian traditions from around the world have long held 
that there was perfect love and fellowship among the members of the Trinity for all eternity and that God did not create anything out of a sense of need. Right? Nevertheless, the scripture teaches that God created us for his glory. Look at this from Isaiah. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth, everyone who's called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. You know, God formed us, made us, we're creatures created for God's glory. And, and it's this basic understanding of human origin that leads then to the New Testament command. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. You know, make, make this uh, that to which you align your life. I mean, think about it consciously. Don't let this just be a Sunday morning church religious idea. Right? Let this be the path of your life. Live into it. Act accordingly. We were created for God's glory. Now, one, one thing I read this week was, I thought, really, really pretty helpful. Uh, in the idea of thinking about us being created for God's glory, uh, one commentator wrote this. This fact guarantees that our lives are significant. When we first realize that God did not need to create us and does not need us for anything, we could conclude that our lives have no importance at all. But scripture tells us that we were created to glorify God, indicating that we are important to God himself. I mean, if we're truly important to God for all eternity, then what greater measure of importance or significance could we want? This idea that God created us to bring glory to him. So we're created, we're created to give, God's, give God glory and that, that, that why we were created flows into our purpose for life. The Westminster Shorter Catechism puts it this way in question and answer one. What is the chief end of man? What is the chief end of, of a human being? Our chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. It's our purpose in life. You know, one, one author really suggests that we glorify God uh, by enjoying him. That we actually bring glory to God when we take delight in the Lord. The psalmist writes that, gives us that command, delight yourself in the Lord. I think that's true. You know, certainly we glorify God when we love God and love other people. Jesus made that abundantly clear. When asked to summarize the law, he said this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. That author I was referring to put it this way, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. So we, we, we glorify God by loving God and others and by enjoying God. So how did we come to be? God made us. Why were we created? To glorify God. What's our purpose in life? Uh, to glorify God by loving God and loving others and enjoying God. That, that's human origin, right? That, that, that's pretty basic to the Christian church around the world. This is what Christians believe. So human origin, now human nature. In, in recording the creation of human beings, the Bible records two very important realities about how we were made. They're in uh, verse 27 of Genesis chapter one. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We were created in God's image. Again, not just an idea for, for a class at church. Think of it. Look around the room. I mean, this is stunning. This is really stunning. Stunning. 
every human being created in the image of God, an, an image bearer, with that fact alone, making every human being worthy of dignity and respect and our careful care. This is what Christians believe. No matter how fallen they might have become, no matter how marred that image of God in them might have become, worthy of dignity and respect and our careful care because every single person, everybody everywhere, bears God's image. Human beings are more like God than anything else in all of creation. Have you ever thought of it that way? The most uh, beautiful picture of a galaxy far away with all the colors and all the human beings are more like God than that. The most beautiful mountainscape, the most pristine lake uh, view. Human beings more like God than all of that. No matter how exasperatingly frustrating they might be to you, they look more like God. They are more like God than anything else in all of creation. Even the angels themselves. We were created in God's image and this has profound implications for how we as Christ followers should view and treat people. It was a marquee of the early church, this ultimate level of respect and concern and careful care for other human beings. This is an incredibly high view of humanity. You ever thought about that? In fact, Christians hold a higher view of human beings than humanists do. And in the irony of all philosophical ironies, in their effort to elevate humanity by discarding the biblical narrative, it's the humanists who dehumanize by settling for a much lesser view of humanity than that taught by the scripture. Every single person, every single person, an image bearer of God, that's the first important reality of our nature. And the second is this, we were created male and female. And the second essential component. And these two components taken together, these two aspects of human nature describe how every human being is similar and how every human being is distinct. So every human being is similar in that we all bear God's image, worthy of dignity and respect and careful care for that reason alone. Every human being is distinct in that we are either male or female. Those are the two primary things the Bible says about human nature. Made in God's image and made one of two sexes. These are the cornerstones of what Christians have believed about human nature. And Genesis 2 goes on to detail the, the purpose of the sexual difference, the distinction between male and female. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now that, that phrase, a helper suitable, is important. Uh, in Hebrew, the word uh, translated helper is ezer. It actually means uh, an ally in a military struggle. So the sense is a partner in a larger mission or purpose. In, in this case, a, a partner in advancing the responsibilities that God gave to humanity in creation because this all happened before the fall. Remember, there's a list of what they're supposed to do in Genesis 28 and, and following. Uh, care for the earth, tend it, rule over it, and, and that kind of thing. The other word, suitable, um, is, is a compound word. Negdo means in front of, inside of, opposite to. When you add the k prefix to it, 
it increases this kind of sense of opposition and leads to a meaning of corresponding to. Like, hey, this person is exactly like me, but different. And right here in the creation account is where marriage enters the conversation. And it's no small thing that the first mention of marriage is in the creation account of human beings. That, that complementarity of the sexes intended for partnership and advancing God's work in the world is named as the basis of marriage. And, and thus, the traditional Christian understanding of marriage, right? The Christian understanding of marriage is, is a union between two sexually different creatures, male and female, that that's actually baked into the definition. Christians believe that was God's intent in creating the two sexes. Now, I know you're feeling this, right? We just had the town hall meeting last week about what's going on in our denomination and are starting the seminar this week on, on human sexuality. And we, we are now at the crux of why same-sex marriage is such a hot topic in the church, right? And, and the question being asked in our denomination is whether it might be a God-honoring option for two Christian men or two Christian women to date, fall in love, remain sexually pure before their wedding day, and commit to a lifelong Christ-centered monogamous union. That's the question. The question is not about any kind of sexual promiscuity, either heterosexual or homosexual. That's clearly ruled out by scripture for the reason that it's not good for us. And when we do that, we're actually hurting ourselves not just doing something that doesn't matter. Uh, It's really about this question on the screen. And and of course, the traditional Christian answer to that question is no. That would not be a God-honoring path for a follower of Jesus. And when I say a traditional Christian response, please don't somehow inadvertently equate that in your head to kind of an outdated idea held by a a bunch of backwards-thinking ancient people. Right, that's, that's not what's intended by that. The Christian understanding of marriage uh, has global, historic, multicultural, multi-denominational, 2,000-year agreement behind it. It is a vast, vast witness. And this, this isn't just my opinion, right? This is a statement of fact. This is what the church has believed over the years. Now, one of of the major distinctives of the early church was their radical sexual ethic. Uh, There's a great book called Destroyer of the Gods by Larry Hurtado. He details five things that made the, the early church socially distinct from everybody else around them. And these were things noticed by the other folks, not just named by the Christians themselves. And one of them was this sexual ethic that was a, a complete countercultural trend to everyone around them. Those early Christians reserved sex for the marriage relationship between one man and one woman. Uh, now, they did not expect the whole rest of the world to abide by their ethic. They simply did it themselves because they held a very high sexual ethic based upon what they believed about human nature, that everybody was an image bearer, exactly the same in that, and that there's this distinction in creation intended for the possibility of marriage. So thus the real rub in this conversation in the church, right? The traditional Christian view links marriage to the essential beliefs about human nature, what Christians believe about human beings. 
therefore the question of the propriety of, of same-sex marriage for Christians in, in those circles is not primarily understood as a social ethical question, but as a theological biblical question, closer to an essential than not. Uh, and, and we have to admit, uh, and, and again, this is not an opinion, this is just a statement of fact. We have to admit in this conversation that in the church that any possibility of answering yes to that, that question being considered by our denomination is both a brand new development in the long uh, course of church history and two, a complete departure from that vast witness that is historic, global, multicultural, multi-denominational and based on 2,000 years of history. I mean, we have to hold that in our mind. We can't, we can't just not think about that, right? To depart that vast witness of the church would be a huge deal. Now, if in your mind you're thinking, yeah, yeah, pastor, you set those people straight. If you're thinking that, even if there's a little iota of that in your heart, I want to suggest to you that you might be the problem. Not people who are experiencing same-sex attraction. Not gay couples who are married and living in a committed relationship. Not people who disagree with you theologically or ethically. No, no, no. You. In what I understand to be the largest research project on the religious background of LGBT people in our country, a six-year nationwide research project connecting with people from every state of our, our union, researcher Andrew Marin discovered some very interesting things. You can read about it in his book, Us Versus Us. He discovered that 83% of LGBT people in our country were raised in the church. He discovered that 51% of LGBT people left their faith community after the age of 18. And he found this. Of those who left, only 3% said they left because of the church's belief that same-sex marriage was wrong. Only 3%. So you might find yourself wondering, if it wasn't the church's belief about marriage that that caused LGBT folks to leave the church, what was it? What was the number one thing they reported? What do you think it was? You can say something, it's okay. I know it's a super hot topic. What do you think it was? People's attitudes, attitudes? yeah. Uh, in, In their own words, we didn't feel safe. We didn't feel safe. (laughs) In the church, you didn't feel safe. The conclusion, it's not our position, theological position, that's driving LGBT people away from the church. It's our posture. Like if you want to be welcoming to everybody, it's not about changing what you believe. It's about changing how you behave. And, and some of the ways we as a larger church have beha- behaved toward people who are gay has been unspeakably horrible. 
I've connected with people from our congregation who have told me stories about people from this church engaging either them or, or maybe their gay sons or daughters. Unbelievable. Unbelievably wrong. Right? And we need to call, as a church, we need to stand and call those behaviors what they are. Homophobic, hurtful, shameful, sinful, unchristlike, and unbefitting a follower of Jesus. Period. It's behavior that the elders of any church should correct in their congregation. Because those behaviors violate the very first thing we believe about human nature, which is every single person bears God's image and is worthy of dignity and respect and careful care for that reason alone. And that that fact alone should prompt us to present ourselves as a safe person to whomever we meet for the purpose of, of advancing God's good purpose in their life and in ours. This is what Christians do. It's what the early church did. It's what made them so drastically different than the culture around them. And everybody noticed and said, we don't know what you got, but we want some of that. And and the brokenness we still continue to see in this whole conversation uh, really speaks to the final point of this message, the human situation. So human origin, human nature, human situation. What's our situation? Bad. I mean, that's, that's it. In theological language, we are fallen and totally depraved. Um. We read that Romans passage this morning. The Apostle Paul used various scriptures from the Old Testament to summarize the universal reign of sin in every human heart. Here it is again. And he didn't hold back on this. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. And quoting another scripture, their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. And another, the poison of vipers is on their lips. And another, their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Another, their feet are swift to shed blood, ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. And one more, there is no fear of God before their eyes. If, if you didn't catch it back in the fall, our own Jordan Hum preached a whale of a sermon on this text. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. It's really, really important. Just everybody is utterly broken. We are completely incapable of helping ourselves in, in God's eyes. I mean, we, we are totally depraved. Now, now that phrase has been misunderstood. It, it doesn't mean that there's no good in people. Like we, we still bear God's image. Right? It doesn't mean that there's no good life in us, no freedom, no, no possibility of making good choices. It, it's just that we're completely um, influenced, every part of us, by the power of sin. John Calvin put it this way. We are so entirely controlled by the power of sin that the whole mind, the whole heart, and all our actions are under its influence. Nothing is left untainted. 
to the point where we, we're just hopeless if left to ourselves. And this, this is the basic Christian understanding. Uh, I didn't have time to pull out my picture and put it on the screen, but I, somewhere I have a picture, and I know I've used this before, so you've, if you've heard it, forgive me. It was so poignant for me. They're just like, it was a stick person drawing, and there were little waves like this indicating an ocean. You know, then the top half of a stick person, up, head, and then one arm was going like this. Right? The person's making an effort to lift themselves out of the ocean. Just hopeless. Right? Utterly hopeless. That that's the human situation. And that's the setup for next week, which is what Christians believe about salvation. Right? What, what did God do about our hopeless situation? So, to conclude today, what Christians believe about humanity is this. We were created by God. We were created for God's glory. We glorify God by loving God and others and by enjoying God. We were created in God's image. We were created male and female. And we are fallen and totally depraved. The vast majority of Christians everywhere believe this stuff about human beings. In that sense, it's the foundation upon which we stand as followers of Jesus. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Pray with me, would you? Lord, we bless you for your goodness to us in all of our imperfection, in all of our brokenness. Uh, Each and every one of us, me included, Work out your good purpose in us, Lord. Help us become more like you. Help us uh, see first in other people your image. Cause our eyes to see that first today and every day. And give us your wisdom and your clarity, Lord. We love you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.